It's the autumn of 1918. The Great War is at last over, but the Spanish influenza pandemic continues to deliver the butcher's bill. Everywhere, children are dying. But in Philadelphia, they're also disappearing. And those kids all have one thing in common. We'll dive into a riveting novel set 100 years ago that's eerily familiar today, next. My parents came to this country from Romania, Bessarabia. In 1918, my family was living in South Philadelphia. I think it was a neighborhood mostly of immigrants. It was a hard life, it was a rough life. My mother and father and my two sisters all had the flu. It was a very sad period. There was like a sadness over the city. When you looked out, you saw hardly anybody walking around. People stayed in their houses because they were afraid. And they said that it seems that if it killed you, it did it fast because they rem I remember them telling me that a young neighbor, they saw him coming home. They watched from the window, he coming from work. And the next afternoon, they saw him carried out. He died. Hello, history lovers, and welcome back to the History Author Show. I am your host, Dean Carianis, and thank you for making iHeartRadio number one in podcasting and for telling a friend about the show, for following me at History Dean on Twitter, and for liking our Facebook page. The lady you just heard was Reba Heimovitz. That's her testimonial on what we today call the Spanish flu. Although, as regular listeners will know, and people who study history, it didn't start in Spain. It was actually because Spain was so honest about having their cases of the pandemic, and the rest of the world that was at war was trying to keep that information secret from their enemies, that we associated it with Spain. That clip is from a documentary called We Heard the Bells, the Spanish Influenza of 1918. It was produced by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Nowhere in America was hit harder than Mrs. Heimovitz's Philadelphia. That's a city we'll experience through the eyes of 13-year-old Pia Lang in acclaimed author Ellen Marie Wiseman's latest novel, The Orphan Collector, a Target Book Club pick and an editor's choice in Historical Novel Society magazine. Like so many German immigrants, Pia's father felt the need to prove his loyalty to his new country, and he did so by enlisting to fight the Kaiser over there. In this story, that leaves Pia and her mother to care for twins Ollie and Max, even as prejudice and later disease beset them on all sides. With Armistice Day and the end of the war, Pia dares to hope for a return to normalcy, but as we all know, you can't eat hope. So Pia is forced to break quarantine in a search for food. She has those two little brothers who are wailing out for food, who are hungry. And so she decides she's going to go and forage. She can't imagine that she'll return home to find her brothers have evaporated into thin air. What happened to them is her central journey in The Orphan Collector. Ella Marie Wiseman is, like her character, the daughter of German immigrants. But unlike Pia, she was born and raised in a tiny hamlet near the Canadian border in upstate New York. Her previous novels include bestsellers such as The Life She Was Given, a moving and emotional saga of family and resilient women, and What She Left Behind, a haunting and heartbreaking story 
of 1920s historical fiction. And that book sold over half a million copies. So that gives you an idea of the kind of book you're going to be reading if you pick up The Orphan Collector and of the kind of author we have for you today. Visit EllaMarieWiseman.com for more on her work and follow our guest on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now that we've put on our masks to fight the spread of the Purple Death, let's join Ella Marie Wiseman a century ago and meet The Orphan Collector. I'm joined via Skype from the shores of Lake Ontario in northern New York by Ellen Marie Wiseman. She's the author of The Orphan Collector. Thank you so much for making the time to chat about your novel with the History Author Show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you, and I was so happy to get this box with your book in it. Because of the current pandemic, I didn't get the package. I just got an email one day from the iHeartRadio mailroom in the city, where I haven't gone for months now. And they said, we have a package here for you. And I said, okay. They said they'd forward it. It doesn't get to me in all that time because of the pandemic now. Because right. And here's this book set in the pandemic 100 years ago. It's <laughs> like no other box that I've gotten. I've gotten a very few that are really dedicated to catching your attention here. Mm-hmm. But this one, your book, The Orphan Collector, really went out of its way to give me cool little things. I felt like a kid again opening it, even though here it's a book about a pandemic. as little <laughs> slips of cards of things like <laughs> spitting equals death. And then they have this, this little, ah, some little bells is nice. And that was cool. And some ah, people can hear the marbles, a little bag of marbles. You know, kids love to play with marbles back then, right, 100 years ago. And I just discovered as we were about to talk and I was enumerating these items a little bottle of laudanum people probably know what laudanum is a opiate that people would take for all manner of things back then you could get them flavored like you get I guess the vaping cartridges now right all different flavors they would give you this opiate no kidding Ugh. people liked it and a pen it's in the form of a syringe with some blue liquid in there that you can write with it so much cool stuff that was in this box so I'd like you to describe how how these contents of the promotion box fit into the world of the orphan collector. Okay, well, let's see. The little bottle of medicine, they took some really strange, tried some really strange remedies back then. Uh, One of the things that they did is they took formaldehyde tablets. They tied garlic around their necks. Some of the boxes had all these different things in them. Like some of the boxes that went out to people had the bottle of the formaldehyde tablets, and then also Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup, which is what they gave babies and children back then, even though it contained ammonia and alcohol. And Mrs. Winslow's syrup was actually considered, after a while, it was considered a baby killer. But they didn't take it off the market until 1931. Yeah, so that's just, those little bottles are just to represent some of the strange things that people tried back then to not catch the flu. And the bag of marbles is one of the main characters. His name is Finn. And this is the first time that he meets Pia, who is the other main character. And he asks, one of the first things he asks her is if she wants to play marbles. Because they're really, really poor. And so having a bag of marbles was a really big deal. And did you get the rattle in there? I did. That's the one here with the bells? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So (laughs) that is connected to the Pia's twin baby brothers. Her father made two 
homemade rattles for the baby twin baby brothers. And so they kind of play into the plot a little bit later on in the book. And the syringe is probably just to represent the nurses, that the visiting nurses that went into the homes to help the sick when the hospitals were overcrowded during the flu. I'm trying to think what else you had in there. Those little slips of paper. Oh, yeah, the... those were they're like little miniature posters of what Pia would have seen back then because they put up posters back then, you know, saying spit equals death and cover your mouth when you sneeze and cough. And they put up posters telling people to wear masks. And there was one poster that said, protect your jaws from septic paws by wearing the gauze or something like that. So, yeah, all that stuff is connected to the book. The box is kind of a montage of those things, almost like wrapping paper, and it says, halt the epidemic, and it's a little devil drawing that's chasing after a man walking down. He looks like he he may have his handkerchief right there in his hand. But all of these things, you know, present the disease, careless, spitting, coughing, sneezing, all these things that sound so familiar, and we'll get into that in a minute, the serendipity of that. Marbles I liked because that was a symbol of wealth and kids would compete for them. And I'm thinking of it when I take that out and I know that I'm going to get that in the orphan collector, that that's going to come up at some point, a sign of wealth. You know, if you could win all the other kids' marbles 100 years ago, that was a big deal. That's how you competed, right? And lead lead to fisticuffs and lead to bullies (laughs) stealing your marbles and all that drama right in that little bag, just as there's all that drama right here in this little book in between the covers. You begin The Orphan Collector on September 28th of 1918 at the Liberty Loan Parade in Philadelphia. Why choose that event to kick off the story? Because Philadelphia was actually the hardest hit city in the United States during the pandemic. So the day of the Liberty Loan Parade, the public really wasn't aware that the flu had returned, especially not in Philadelphia. There was like, I think, 600 sailors at the Naval Yard that were sick, and they were starting to admit people to the hospitals. And medical professionals had advised the mayor to cancel the parade because they knew that the flu was back and it was bad. Because this is during the second wave, by the way. The first wave was in the spring and it was milder. So the Liberty Loan Parade happens during the second wave. And so even though medical professionals told the mayor to cancel the parade. He didn't do it. So 200,000 people showed up for this parade. And within six weeks, I believe 12,000 people in Philadelphia died. So that's why I chose that day for the book to start, because it was kind of, you know, the catalyst for everything that happened in that city. And something that when you're reading it today, you recognize how scary that is to be in that crowd. And that adds so much first person experience to it when you're reading it today and i think that that's just fantastic as fantastic as you could think two horrible pandemics might be book list highly recommended the orphan collector and they noted readers will not be able to help making comparisons to the covid19 pandemic and how little has changed since 1918 this is a rare opportunity for me speaking to an author who likewise has a rare opportunity to answer the question and that is You couldn't see this grim marketing synergy on the horizon when you wrote The Orphan Collector, but now you can look back and you can rate yourself. I can't go back and ask someone who wrote a book set during World War II, well, hey, we happen to have another World War II with the exact same sorts of things going on. How do you think you did? But I can ask you that, so I'm going to. And that is, even though you didn't see this coming, couldn't have, 
How do you rate yourself now, having lived through months of this, of things like don't sneeze, don't spit? Uh-huh. How do you feel about the job you did here in the Orphan Collector of capturing life during a pandemic? Well, there are a lot of similarities between what happened back then and what's happening now. With people being told to wear masks and people protesting against wearing masks, with schools closing down, with businesses closing down, with politicians downplaying what was happening, with false information being spread, sometimes by the media, sometimes not. So there's a lot of similarities, but there's a lot of differences too, especially during the second wave, because the second wave was so much more deadly than the first wave. And it was so much more contagious. People could be fine one minute and dead within hours. So I think as far as capturing how people in 1918 must have felt, I think I did a good job. I don't want to, I don't really like to rate myself, but readers have been saying that it was eerily familiar to them how the main character must have felt. And but she was in such a much worse situation than we are. So I think I did okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you should be pleased with the story, regardless of the real world details, but that's just such a bit of happenstance that the book would come out right then. Yeah. And by the way, I wanted to mention that we talked about all these items that people of course can't see here, but you can't see them on our Instagram pages because I posted a picture of the box with the things and I'm going to, post one of that laudanum because I didn't notice that at first. So people can go to either of our Instagrams and see pictures of what's in this box and get an idea of what they'll be reading and see some really finely done PR. So my congratulations there to Kensington, your publisher, for making the book stand out. And it's a book that deserves it. Well, thank you. you. It it sucks you in and makes you look at it. So I appreciated that. Yeah, I really appreciate the job that Kensington did with that. I was pretty much blown away myself when I saw it. Some of them don't put a lot into it and it's up to the authors right. to do it. So this was nice to get a little bit of an assist. You're not on your own on that. And hey, it worked because I certainly was drawn into the book because I, I get a ton of books. And this one, I said, well, this one's it spoke to me because I am interested in that period anyway. And so all those little things like the marbles and the little signs and mm-hmm. things like advertising for it, that always was of interest. You give us a flavor for something else then when we start to read The Orphan Collector, and that's what a melting pot Philadelphia was in 1918, 1919. It's a city where there's all these languages being spoken, whether it's Pia's German family, she has Hungarian neighbors, she has that Irish friend you mentioned, Finn Duffy. One thing that helps you when you're writing dialogue is dialect, and of course people have accents and the like. I find that that can be distracting sometimes to readers, especially when you have an Irish accent, let's say, and immediately you've heard it parodied so many times that it sounds funny when you're reading it. And then, you know, if you have uh, an accent of a Slavic person, you don't want to make somebody sound ignorant. You know, all these things to the modern ear can prove a little bit distracting because people are going to get a little bit bothered maybe or offended or confused or people won't take the book seriously. So as an author, you need a little bit of a light touch there. How did you choose just how much dialect, slang, and other inflections to include so it's not distracting to your readers? Well, I think that readers, somehow our brains, once we realize that a character has this dialect, that just one or two words, and, and you know, like when I say Finn Dovey is Irish, and you read those one or two words in his dialogue, and you automatically somehow hear his voice in that dialect 
every time you read it from then on. So I think if you put too much, it gets really distracting, you know, and it's like people are reading it and it's like they could trip over it. And I think it's really distracting if you try too hard to spell out all that dialogue. And it's nice that it also does more lifting for you. I like everything to be able to do multiple things when I write. And for one thing, for instance, every time Pia goes to call her mother Mm -hmm. Moody, which is the M-U-T-T-I, right? The German word for it. She corrects herself and she thinks of, oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to call her that because they're trying to blend in, for lack of a better word, not be picked out as Germans when the U.S. is in the middle of fighting Germany. And that tells you not only about her and how she would speak and how she would sound, but it reminds you of the greater world that your novel takes place in. Right, right. I mean, at the time, actually, German was not allowed to be spoken in public. Wow. So she was afraid of someone hearing her say that. And grab her and think that you're taking pictures. And Right. We don't think about that. We hear a lot about the Japanese-American and ethnic Japanese experience interning under FDR's administration. Here it is a generation before, and the German experience is forgotten. Their trouble that they suffered, tremendous civil rights violations in the Great War at the hands of the Wilson administration. It's why sometimes German-Americans are called the invisible minority. So many people named Schmidt decided they would become Smiths and the like to blend in. So how did you go about fleshing out Pia's world so that the fiction honored those real people who suffered? And since you come from German immigrant parents, I wonder if they ever changed your name. Your name is Wiseman. Was that always the name or did they decide they might want to change theirs? Uh, well, Wiseman is my married name. Oh, okay. Um, Weiler is my maiden name, which is even more German. Over where my mother grew up, there's actually a village called Ellen Weiler. <laughs> So my mother actually came over in 1957 by herself. So my grandparents and aunts and uncles and everything were still all over there. But back to what was happening during World War One, there was a lot of, you know, anti-German sentiment, obviously. But there were laws that German wasn't supposed to be spoken in public. Newspapers in German language were shut down. Churches with German congregations were shut down and painted yellow. I don't think that they were allowed to have bank accounts, you know, and and everybody thought, you know, the German immigrants, you know, they're probably hoarding weapons and they're going to rise up against us. And of course, when the flu happened, they also got blamed for that. Bayer was a German-owned company, so everybody thought they were poisoning the aspirin. They thought the German immigrants were poisoning the food. They thought U-boats were dropping off soldiers to infect the bigger cities and stuff like that. So basically what I did is I just used the facts of what was really happening during that time to show why Pia and her mother were, especially her mother, who had signed papers to refuse her German citizenship, which is what people were supposed to do, and also be fingerprinted. But she couldn't afford to buy war bonds because they were so poor. So that's why she was so insistent on going to this Liberty Loan Parade, because she wanted to show her loyalty to the United States, to her neighbors. And it's a fateful decision for right. her, as it turns out, but I, I won't spoil that. There were acts of sabotage, too, most notably the Black Tom explosion, and that was right near Liberty Island, where you could see a, some flags and a memorial to it. And that was so loud, that explosion, that they heard it all the way in Maryland. Mm. So think how far the Statue of Liberty is from Maryland. So, And they forced reparations. They were, they were convinced that was the Germans, and they forced part of the 
ultimate armistice was they had to pay for that. So, gosh, imagine you're you're a German American and you're dealing with that at the time. Everyone's saying, "See, that's confirmation bias for them right there." Right. And I know in one of the World Wars, I think it was World War II, but they burned in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is where the George Washington Bridge comes across in New Jersey, and they were looking for any of the German U-boats. The kids would watch. My dad was in. Washington Heights and when he was a little kid and then in Fort Lee right across from Manhattan the other side of the bridge and they had the little cards they would look for U-boats they would look for planes and watch for Germans and they became convinced that this German family that had a little house there was signaling U-boats and so they they went and they burned their house down and you could still see a little bit of it if you if you go look around on the internet maybe I'll link to it on the historyauthor.com page for this so people can see there's a tiny bit of the downstairs that's still there that you drive by. So this is a real threat. This is not just people saying mean things about you on the internet. And there's nobody, there's no civil rights organizations, there's not the vast majority of the country as we would hope that we have today that's going to say, well, you can't lump all these people in. They're they're Americans, they're loyal. Here Pia's father's off fighting the Hun, as they would have said, and seeing the elephant, to use a little bit more (laughs) slang from the Great War, off fighting the war. And so that's something that they would have feared and they would be hearing these things. And she has other kids bullying her. And you're a German. You're not really an American. So they go to this parade and they say, well, we're going to wave the flag. We're going to show that we're loyal. It's really a tense bit because you know that they have to do it. You could see why they think they have to do it. But you also know that this pandemic is raging around them. Right. So I thought that was a great place to send them and put them in that crucible, as they call it in novel writing, where they really have no good decision and that's their least bad decision. Right. It is. There's also a little bit of a supernatural element to the orphan collector in the form of what we might call, with apologies to Stephen King, a touch of the shining. She has just a little bit of foreboding, a little bit of, I guess they might call it prophetic in some circles, where she she seems to sense things that are going to go wrong. That was something interesting in a historical fiction book that I guess I haven't come across before in any of the books that I've interviewed on the show, although I love that kind of thing. I love the Twilight Zone. I love those old Edgar Allan Poe stories. You have a very light touch with that, though, when we start the book, which is also how a good book is written, right? You don't start everything off crazy right at the beginning because you'll lose readers. You want to just make it part of natural life. How did you arrive at that part of Pia's character? Well, it's just always something that I've been interested in. When I first started writing, I thought I would be writing about supernatural things and, and paranormal and stuff like that. And one of my other books touches on something like that, too, as far as a character being able to kind of communicate with her dead brother. But for this, I thought, what, um, you know, of course, when you're writing a book, you always want to make things difficult for your characters, unfortunately, because if everything's going hunky-dory, you know, it's going to be boring. But I thought, what more terrible spot to be in if you're able to feel this sickness in others, to have that ability during a pandemic, you know, it's like, holy cow, talk about overwhelmed. When I first started putting it in there and I started writing, I thought, oh, I'm just making more more work for myself. But then as the book went on, it really helped <laughs> and played into the plot and helped her out in a lot of ways in the end. You talked about setting Pia's task up, and I wanted to ask a question about that, because here there's a pandemic, and during the Great War, that's more chaos. So here you have two chaotic events going on, and they're happening in a world where a person could already disappear under a new name pretty easily. You could move to a new town, get a train ticket, change your name from 
Dean to Gus and just leave your past behind. Have have two families. There's nothing like they're going to ask for your social security number or references. Nobody can look at your picture on Facebook and, and right. maybe find you, right? It's the, the witness protection program was basically for anybody to have. You got you got tired of your life. You just get a stick, tie a bandana to it, put a, you know, a little bit of food in there, take your laudanum <laughs> in your pocket and hit the open road. And I thought that that's a great setting for Pia's drama, but it's a challenge because I'm saying this poor girl, it's so hard in this world, but she has to have a pathway to learning mm-hmm. what's happened to her brothers when they when they disappear. She has to have a way to be able to, to find her father, to find out what's going on. So I thought that presents you a challenge because you have to look in your research and say, I want to create a hard task for Pia, but it can't be an impossible task where when she eventually hopefully does solve it, people say, well, how is that even possible? She lives in a world where people could just disappear. So how did you go about designing that so she would have a believable path to solving this problem? Well, it's funny because I don't think I had that figured out (laughs) until I got to it. And because there were so many children orphaned during this pandemic, a lot of them did disappear. You know, they went into orphanages or I know that the government did ask what they considered true American women to take in these some of these orphan kids and who knows where they ended up. And of course, there was the orphan trains and stuff back then, too. So I wanted her to obviously run into roadblock after roadblock as she looks for her brothers and going to the orphanage was a huge one because, you know, she had no power. She couldn't get out. No one was going to listen to her. You know, it's like they thought, you know, you're a 13 year old, you can't go off on your own. And in the end, the fact that she was sent to this orphanage and met certain people there, that was kind of how she found her way back to where she needs to be without giving anything away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. When I put her in the orphanage, it didn't start out as something that was going to help her, but it ended up helping her in the end, if that makes sense. So you don't (laughs) plot out a lot before you start writing. You're rather, I mentioned Stephen King, and I remember reading once, it might have been in that book he wrote, Dance Macabre, his book on horror and on the genre, and, and gives a lot of insights into how he writes. And he said, I just write in a line. And then as I'm writing, sometimes a character will show up and they'll say, what are you doing? And I'll say, well, uh, I don't know, but hey, you're here. Maybe you can help me. Right. It sounds a little bit like that maybe is how you write. Maybe you write with a general destination in mind and you just you leave the rest of the things for the editing process afterwards. Well, because I'm always on a deadline, I do outline first. Sometimes I don't know the ending, though. Sometimes I have an idea what the ending is. It's going to be, but I'm not sure how I'm going to get there. And I don't always follow the outline exactly because it is true that sometimes these characters do things that you don't expect them to do or somebody else shows up, which kind of happened actually while writing this. So yeah, I do outline, but I don't necessarily stick to it. I don't have time to like go down the wrong path for six months, (laughs) you know? Yeah, you don't you don't have the time to be locked up in a figurative room right. for six months and then decide you have to rewrite all that. So you don't want to do that, I'm sure. Right, and then my editor's like, what do you mean you need six more months, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not how it works. You have to have a montage where you're done by the, you know, you squeeze everything right. into two minutes and be done now. Yeah. You write that the seeds of your first novel called The Plum Tree 
were planted during childhood visits to your mother's hometown in Germany. Mm -hmm. In The Orphan Collector, you have us see Great War America through the eyes of this family that's immediately suspected of disloyalty because of their heritage. What seeds from your childhood, if any, can readers find sprouting in this novel, The Orphan Collector? Well, the first thing that I think of is probably when Pia is called Filthy Hun when she's at school. Believe it or not, when I was in school and we started learning about the Holocaust and everybody knew that my mother was German, so I was called a Nazi. You know, some of the guys would salute me in the hall, you know, with the high Hitler thing. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And also the other thing, that which, is, which is a little more pleasant, is the vase, her, her mother's vase that she sees in the apartment. And so she knows she's in the right place when she goes there and the strangers are in the apartment, but the vase is there and her grandmother's tablecloth. And I have, and my mother had too, some of the things from her mother from Germany. So that were always a big part of my childhood, you know, like this is from my Oma in Germany and stuff like that. So that's kind of the first few things that I think of. It's nice to have memories and then be able to include and really immortalize them in the story because right. those are things that always make you think of them. And it's little things that you may not realize when you're growing up just how important and how much that will stick with you. But it does. It sticks in your mind and becomes part of your personal history. Yeah. When I interview a novelist, I like to ask for you to read a passage for listeners. So that not only gives us a flavor for your writing, but... As with any good dialogue, you can walk into a room and you can say hello 20 different ways, but the way you choose really will show who you are. Talk about dialect. I mean, if Finn walks in and says top of the morning to you, we know immediately where he's from, right? As opposed to just saying hello or hey, y'all. Right. So set up this passage you've chosen from the Orphan Collector and have at it. I'm going to start right in with chapter one and September 28th, 1918. The deadly virus stole unnoticed through the crowded cobblestone streets of Philadelphia on a sunny September day, unseen and unheard amidst the jubilant chaos of the Liberty Loan Parade and the patriotic marches of John Philip Sousa. More than 200,000 men, women, and children waved American flags and jostled one another for prime viewing space along the two-mile route, while the people behind shouted encouragement over shoulders and past faces to the bands, Boy Scouts, Women's auxiliaries, Marines, sailors, and soldiers in the street. Planes flew overhead. Draft horses pulled eight-inch howitzers. Military groups performed bayonet drills. Church bells clanged, and police whistles blew. Old friends hugged and shook hands. Couples kissed, and children shared candy and soda. Unaware that the lethal illness had escaped the naval yard, the eager spectators had no idea that the local hospitals had admitted over 200 people the previous day, or that numerous infectious disease experts had pressured the mayor to cancel the event. Not that it would have mattered. They were there to support the troops, buy war bonds, and show their patriotism during a time of war. Victory in Europe and keeping the Huns out of America was first and foremost on their minds. Many of the onlookers had heard about the flu hitting Boston and New York, but the director of laboratories at the Phipps Institute of Philadelphia had just announced he'd identified the cause of the specific influenza causing so much trouble. And the local newspaper said influenza posed no danger because it was as old as history and usually accompanied by foul air, fog, and plagues of insects. None of those things were happening in Philadelphia. Therefore, it stood to reason that as long as everyone did what the Board of Health advised, kept their feet dry, stayed warm, 
ate more onions and kept their bowels and windows open, they'd be fine. But 13-year-old Pia Lang knew something was wrong. And not because her best friend, Finn Duffy, had told her about the dead sailors his older brother had seen outside a local pub. Not because of the posters on telephone poles and buildings that read, when obliged to cough or sneeze, always place a handkerchief, paper napkin, or fabric or some kind before the face. Pia knew something was wrong because the minute she had followed her mother, who was pushing her twin baby brothers in a wicker baby pram onto the packed parade route, a sense of unease had come over her, like the thick air before a summer thunderstorm or the swirling discomfort in her belly right before she got sick. You start and end every chapter, be it chapter one or chapter two, with something really punchy, with a real hook. The last line seems to beg you to read that one more chapter. And it's authors like you that make us stay up late till 2 a.m. reading a book and say just one more chapter, just one more chapter. And so that's morning guy's problem that you stayed up till 3 a.m. Night guy wants to finish the orphan collector. Right. Look at just the first few words. The deadly virus stole unnoticed through the cobblestone streets of Philadelphia. Right there, you have gotten, we know the cobblestone streets, right? So we kind of know the era that we're in. We know where we are in the city, so we know where, where we are on the map, too. So you've given us a sense of time and place there, and you've given us the threat, the deadly virus. The first three words are place, and that gives us the theme of the book, these threats. And a virus could be not just the literal virus, but also the other threats that are stealing through the city in the form of the orphan collector. Chapter two, you introduce us to this woman who's the antagonist, and that sentence is, for what seemed like the thousandth time in the past few days, 20-year-old Bernice Groves stared out the third floor window of her row house on Skunk Alley in the fifth ward, trying to figure out how to kill herself. So chapter two starts out just as strong. And I've often had authors say that an editor will suggest switching the second chapter to the first, and they'll say, start the book right there. You're a seasoned novelist, so you knew already to start that first chapter the way that you did with a strong hook. But you do seem to start off every chapter and end every chapter with a hook and then with a cliffhanger at the end so that we want to continue on. Is that something that you've developed over time, those transitions? And how do you use those to keep your story moving swiftly so that a reader who picks up the Orphan Collector and starts that first page will go all the way to the last page and then say, oh, wow, it's over already? Well, you know, it's really weird because I know that I hear so many authors say that they spend so much time on first sentences. And I don't know why, but every time I write a book, the first sentence just comes to me right away. <laughs> and I read a book on writing, I think it was probably by Stephen King, about, you know, that all-important first sentence. And so I tried to follow his advice about making sure that there's a hook right there in the first sentence. And also, as far as the last sentences of every chapter, I always want to make sure that the reader's, like, left hanging and wants to know what's going to happen when I turn the page, you know? I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs> well, it does. I, although I'm sure that there are novelists out there who listen to the show who are shaking their fist right now or 
<laughs> just in straight disbelief. They're one way or the other. They're either saying, no way, nobody has their first sentence right away. And others are saying, really, it comes easy to her. I slave over mine. Yeah. I know just what you mean. A lot of people do. It's my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite part is writing that first sentence. And of course, the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, if it comes to you easily, why wouldn't it be your favorite part, right? You don't have to wait till you're halfway through, as you said, and telling your editor, I need another six months to go over the right. first line. But it also can be something that will stop authors that are first-time authors maybe or just thinking where we all do those things that give us the illusion of motion, right? Of all people, James A. Garfield I use as an example. When I read his biography the first time, it said how he was trying to write his inaugural address and he kept putting it off. And then he said, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read all the previous inaugural addresses up to 1880 to try to get an idea. And I laughed and I said, well, he's just procrastinating, right? He's putting it off. (laughs) And then sure enough, I turned the page and he he realizes in his diary or what have you that, oh gosh, I'm I'm just procrastinating. And now I have to give this thing tomorrow and say why I want to be president. He just wasn't happy with it at all we all do those things right you say well before i write i have to organize all my books in the dewey decimal oh, system yeah. <laughs> and i have to that's for sure bookmark my computer and i need i remember frank mccourt the pulitzer prize winner and they asked him at one point because he'd been a teacher when he wrote angela's ashes and they said to him well where do you write and he said well i write in my office i write at home i write on the subway i write on the bus people who mm-hmm. need to have everything just so and the scented candles and i understand some people that works for them but for making that first sentence sometimes that can be a hang up just like the title because often as you know a publisher will change the title right. and yet we get hung up on saying well what's my headline going to be for a news story and well or you get mad at some columnist right and say well your your headline was terrible and they say well we don't write the headlines we don't write the titles i don't even right. make the cover art i didn't mention the cover art here on the orphan collector which is just stunning and beautiful it's uh, i guess a little girl meant to be peer she's sitting on some wooden steps and you can even tell from the steps that it's not a it's certainly not a wealthy home there's no carpet on them or anything just these worn wooden steps and her face in her hands in prayer and that dress you can even tell from the dress the era and you can tell that's probably some straight off the rack fabric right and i assume that you didn't have a hand in making that maybe you did but what did you think if not when you first saw the cover of the orphan collector oh i was blown away my publisher always asks me for ideas but you know then they pretty much do do what they want okay they are really nice but when my editor sent me that cover i was blown away it was just perfect seems that you have a very pleasant working relationship with Kensington. Any author would dream of that kind of collaboration, straight soup to nuts. And then with the publicity for the book, not just telling you, hey, you've got to go promote the book, but sending out this wonderful package going above and beyond. Yeah, they definitely are in the trenches with me, and I really appreciate it. I'm using this again because I so rarely get to have a live audio aid in my interviews. And that's your cue that I'm going to reintroduce my guest and read one of the many reviews praising The Orphan Collector. You're enjoying my conversation with Ellen Marie Wiseman about her book, The Orphan Collector. You can visit her at ellenmariewiseman.com. And find more about her other works of fiction. You can also follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. As I mentioned, she's active across the social media platforms. Her name is spelled W I S E. M-A-N. Stephanie Dre, the best-selling author of America's First Daughter, calls The Orphan Collector an immersive historical tale with chilling twists and turns, beautifully told and richly imagined. 
Ellen, as a reader, Stephanie Dre's blurb draws me into the excitement of The Orphan Collector. That makes me want to open up the book and go on this ride with Pia. But as a writer and someone who knew I'd be interviewing you, it's rather like if you're a woodworker and you go into one of those ancient cathedrals or churches that you just mentioned being painted yellow and you see, boy, look at those stations of the cross. Look at all that chiseling that's done in stone and the carving of wood that's 30 feet up that no one's ever going to see really. And you say, that took a lot of work. That might have been somebody's whole lifetime of work was just getting these cathedrals to look the way they do, to do these beautiful works of art. And that's exhausting, you think. Those guys must have gone blind just being in there with their you know, their little woodworking tools. There's no kind of computer that's helping them do it. There's no power tools to sand, nothing. So what is your method for creating a story that is indeed immersive, but that meets that deadline so that you don't go down a rabbit hole for six months and have to sheepishly tell Kensington that you need more time and can't meet the deadline, but that doesn't drown your readers in exposition and historical detail either. Um, when I'm reading a book, I always want to be able to picture the surroundings. So I always kind of try to start from big to small, if that makes sense. If they're in a room, you know, you'd start with the walls or whatever and work down to, you know, what's right in front of the character or what they're holding or whatever. But, you know, I want to use all the senses, sight and sound and smell, because that's what builds the world around us, you know, and that's what we all use. And I don't know, I just, when I read a book, I want those details. And I also try to make sure that those details are correct. I can't have, you know, I can't have Pia walking down the cobblestone street and stop at Starbucks to pick up a coffee. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I have to know the, you know, like, like you said, saying the cobblestone streets, you know, exactly that it's old times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not the right word. <laughs> and with the horses. Yeah. It gives you an error. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's like you have to know what kind of uh, vehicles, you know, was their cars, was was everything horse-drawn, you know, what the people are wearing for clothes, what they're eating, what they're drinking, you know, what those walking down a busy street in, in Philadelphia, what it smelled like, you know. Oh, yeah. So I just try to add all those details to make it as real as possible. I like how I say, oh, yeah, as if I was actually there in 1918, but <laughs> that just shows you how vivid your writing was in the book. and. I like that technically also in chapter one, the deadly virus stole unnoticed is not first words there. They are September 28th, 1918. Mm -hmm. And even though you put the date there, you don't lean on that and say to your readers, okay, there, here's the date. Now I'm just going to tell the story and not worry about it. You still bring us in and you still describe what we're seeing because just giving people the date isn't enough to really immerse them in the story. And there's that word right there that we had in Stephanie Dre's review where she says an immersive historical tale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to, you know, like in that first paragraph, I wanted to bring that parade to life, yeah. you know, so that you could picture yourself there. You feel it, hear it, as you said, every bit. The smell certainly, and it has to be beyond the horses, but that's a key right. part of it. You would have smelled horses everywhere you went back at that parade. Right. And that idea of those people walking and knowing that they're the walking dead, I know I've mentioned, I'm sure before in other interviews on the History Authors Show in Camp Merritt, which is in the town where I grew up. Now it's just suburbs there in New Jersey, straddling the Cresco, New Jersey border with Dumont next door. 
People would walk down the streets there. They'd wake up in the morning feeling fine. The soldiers, after this hit, Harry Truman comes through there. And it's, it's just a big station for people to get down to Hoboken and to be trained before they go over there. Mm-hmm. And they'd be walking down the street and they would just die. Right. And now when I drive through them, you go to your friend's house to play the Atari 2600 in the 80s. And you'd say, you know, somebody might have been walking down the street here and just died right on this spot because this was one of the barracks. You might not get invited over again to your friend's house when you do that. <laughs> I know pretty well, but it's a, but it's the thing I could never get it out of my head, just how you'd wake up in the morning and then by night you could be dead and you cover that here in the Orphan Collector. Yeah. And that's definitely an item. You mentioned how things are different today than they were back then. That's definitely a detail that we don't deal with now where you have this virus that moves so swiftly through people. Right. I mean, this is why the Purple Death, they have time to give it so many horrible names because it was indeed horrible, the Spanish influenza. And childhood is hard enough being a girl whose father is gone mm-hmm. she has trouble you know and so here's something where it's targeting kids today it seems to target the elderly the COVID-19 pandemic but this one you had whole families die mm-hmm. you mentioned earlier about orphans and how many there were it was also just a whole family might be wiped out and you were the only one that survived where what was the place for you where would you go and that's uh, central to the book here, where he, somebody convinces themselves that, hey, I can go grab these kids up and start taking them off and do what I wish with them. Right. And, you know, that's the other thing, too. I finished this book in January 2019. And the villain, Bernice, because of her, I thought that immigration would be the most talked about aspect of this book. But, you know, that COVID hit and it changed everything. <laughs> Bernice was my way of showing my frustration with the way that families were being separated at the border and also the way that some people think that immigrants should be treated. So there's that whole aspect of it too. You never knew what was going to end up being the key thing. That shows why you should just write a good story and then right. count on it, you know, and it, it's okay to have a, a motivation, of course, and have a something that inspires you to write this story, but really important to just write a good story. Cause especially when you think about how long it takes a book just to get published and right. to go from the editor and if you don't have an agent yet you have to find an agent and, and all of that so that's a cool little detail that I didn't know yeah and I, I actually a reader had asked me if I had heard about the Spanish flu and I said well I kind of heard about it but then when I did more research and I realized you know that it infected a third of the world's population and killed 50 million people I was like holy cow I need to set something <laughs> in this era and then the whole other aspect of the orphan collector came into it it's just weird how it came together. I hope you gave that person a signed copy of your book. Oh, I did. Her name is actually, <laughs> actually one of the characters I named after her. Oh, that's nice. She's yeah. immortalized too. Right. I mentioned Pia's Hungarian neighbor. Her neighbor's from all over the world, but there are some people in the book who are Hungarian. And you did something that I thought was very clever. You send Pia into a tense confrontation into that apartment where she's looking for her mother and sees that vase. And it's a tense confrontation in the sense that it's frustrating for readers because we don't speak the language and they're speaking Hungarian to her. And rather than just writing the way they do in closed caption and parentheses, speaking Hungarian or speaking foreign language, Mm -hmm. you write it out in the book. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a really clever choice because we're just as frustrated as readers because we're sharing with Pia. We're just as, as ignorant as she is because we don't understand the language. We can't 
tell what those people are saying in Hungarian. Now, granted, we could cheat, which I did not do, and look on the internet and look up the <laughs> words, but the meaning of the words isn't what's important there. And when do you ever say that to an author, that the words aren't what matter? The meaning of the words isn't what matter, right? Right. It's the example that they give. And that was a really, really good way to bring me into that moment with her, where she's frustrated and you feel her frustration through that, because in a small way, you're frustrated by not knowing what these people are saying to her in their native tongue. Right. But I can see an author wobbling about that, whether or not to write down unintelligible dialogue and words. Dialogue is probably the most potent weapon that a novelist has. So what went into that decision? Did you go back and forth on doing that? Did an editor or anybody ever suggest to you removing it? Or did it just come naturally as it seems so much of your writing does? Well, in my first book, there's a lot of German because it's from the German, average German perspective during World War II because it's kind of loosely based on my family's. So all of that dialogue, I did do the whole, you know, explain what they actually said. And I did do that at first with this. It was either my agent or my editor because I always have my agent read it first before I send it to my editor. I think he's the one that said, you don't need to do that because she doesn't know what they're saying. So the reader doesn't need to know what they're saying. So I can't really take credit for that, but I, I'm glad it worked. <laughs> You're so blessed to have so many fine people collaborating with you and giving you great advice. Wow, that's great. No wonder the books fly together. Because <laughs> not only are you already very good at it, but you have good people that you speak to around you. That's the kind of thing I love to hear when I interview somebody. Yeah. Speaking of collaborations, watch watch this segue now, everybody. <laughs> Pets can play a special part in an author's writing routine. So here is a four-legged contributor to the fine work here you'll be getting in The Orphan Collector. I read in your bio at ellamariewiseman.com that you have, quote, a spoiled shih tzu named Izzy. Now this jumped out at me because growing up, my dog, Lu Chao, was in fact a shih tzu. Oh. In fact, maybe an ancestor of Izzy because Lu Chao was an accomplished show dog and he had a very large lineage. He had many children. Oh. It was such a nice touch here. When I read Shih Tzu, I smiled that Izzy was a Shih Tzu. Uh -huh. So I'm going to bet that Izzy does play a role in your writing routine and that you have some pleasant anecdotes to share. So lay one on us. What part does Izzy play? How does Izzy fit into your writer's life? Well, let's see. Izzy used to have a little friend named Bella who was a black and white Shih Tzu, but she passed away a couple years ago. Oh. And Izzy's 14. But let me tell you what, she keeps me on my toes. And if I'm typing away too long, she lets me know it. She will come over and start whining at me. And if I don't pay attention, she'll howl until I get up and play with her for a few minutes. <laughs> keeps you moving. Right. And then she likes to be chased. So I chase her around a little bit. I don't know if she's like, listen, you've been sitting there long enough. Get up. <laughs> <laughs> she makes sure that you get your 40 laps around the yeah. writing room. Yeah. How did you pick a Shih Tzu? I would have thought maybe a German dog since you have a German ancestry. But here's that melting pot we talked about. You end up with a Shih Tzu, a Chinese dog. I know. I actually used to have a hobby farm with horses and goats and sheep and all sorts of dogs. I had five dogs, I think, at one time. And most of them were rescues. You know, I had the rescue lab and... Some, just some mongrels. And of course, people always like to drop animals off when they see a farm. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I always had bigger dogs. My daughter, when she was 21, she wanted a Shih Tzu because her boyfriend had one. <laughs> and I was like, what do you want? What are those little yappy dogs for? Ah, little did you know. Well, let me tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> I fell in love. And she went away to college 
and Izzy stayed with me. <laughs> and when she came back, I said, uh, too bad, she's mine now. <laughs> <laughs> I just love her to death. Well, the Mandarin phrase Shih Tzu translates into the little lion. I know. So there you go. You were getting a dog that has a lion's heart. So what a, what a wonderful thing. I, I know I'm indulging myself a little bit here for the listeners, but this is why you're here, to get a view behind the great books like The Orphan Collector that, and the authors that I speak to. We have time for one final question, so I want to ask you to make your pitch. Here we are in the middle of another global pandemic, 100 years after the one you write about in The Orphan Collector. There may be listeners who say they've had enough of talk about viruses and masks, and so I wanted you to make your pitch to them, but also to everybody who's enjoying our conversation today. Why should they pick up The Orphan Collector and join Pia Lang on this quest to reassemble her family? Well, I was a little bit worried at first that people wouldn't want to read about uh, another pandemic while they were living through one. But what I found is that every reader has told me that they have found comfort from reading this book. But what I hope is that people will be drawn to Pia's strength and resilience when she's facing these impossible odds. But I also hope that Bernice's story will remind everyone that empathy for others, no matter their race, nationality, or religion, is always the right choice. Well, Ella Marie Wiseman, author of The Orphan Collector, thanks so much for spending time with me today. Special thanks to your publisher, Kensington, for hooking me into this very special story with that fun and interesting package. And you talked about all the senses, touching them all. They even touched sound. What kind of book gives you sound, right? Unless you're sitting with me here on a show doing an interview about it. So many great things there. And I I hope people will check that out on our Instagram pages. Just see a little bit of that. And I hope that many other books will come my way from your writing tablet, from Izzy sitting with you. And we can get to chat about those and your next adventure. I'm going to watch my mailbox for If it's a box and I see that it's from your publisher, I am going to right away want to tear into it, see what treasures you have, not just here, little trinkets like the marbles, but inside the covers of your book. I'm sure it'll meet the standard of all your others. It was just great. I enjoyed it. And I want to thank you so much for sharing it. Well, I thank you so much for your kind words about my work and for having me and talking to me and asking me all these great questions. (laughs) Well, come back anytime. All right. Thank you. Again, the novel is The Orphan Collector. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying this book or any book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual, and for bringing us on a fictional journey through a sneezing, feverish, virus-ravaged world 100 years ago that strikes us with special resonance in 2020. Visit ellamariewiseman.com for more on our guests' works of fiction, and from her website you'll find her accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of social media, you can let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as well at the show's pages. Plus, there's our YouTube channel, and if you'd like to subscribe there or on iTunes, please feel free to do so and leave us a review. That's it for this 1918 installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. 
and have a great week. And then came the day Broadway wasn't prepared When the newsboys yelled extra, war is declared But the hand that held glasses of wine in the air Were the first to hold guns when I rode over there The boys won the war and came home from the fight The last night on Broadway was almost his night but ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears.